My name is Zane Velji. I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm a campaign strategist. What that what that means uh, in such a non-convoluted way is that I help, uh, whether it be campaigns of a political nature, a corporate nature, or nonprofit, uh, help them find their quote-unquote voters, um, help them draw the strategy for success, whether that's a political campaign and, and you know and it's winning against your opponent, or whether that's a corporate campaign and it's presenting a certain idea or ideology. Uh, over a competing one. So I help and I run and I strategize campaigns. That's kind of my my jam. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Thanks for uh, inviting me to your home, man. Dude, welcome. You're in <laughs> Calgary. You're right off Confederation Park. I've got coffee, you've got water, so the power imbalance is already in place. Yes, this is yes, good. Yes. Uh, no, happy to have you, man, and welcome to Calgary. Yeah, no, th- thank you so much. And it's um, uh, obviously it wasn't planned this way. At least it wasn't for me because I, I, I don't know, you know, what goes on in, in this in this province. But yesterday, um, the the new budget was introduced. Is yes. That the, or I was gonna say dropped, but it's, that's that's a new. No, you dropped the no no you yeah, dropped the, drop the budget. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 you drop a mic at the end of the speech. Very similar. <laughs> Uh, less excitement. Uh, yeah, I, I saw. I think it was on your Instagram. You, you posted a picture of your face, and I wasn't sure. Is he? Ha- he doesn't look happy, but he's not angry. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. My ambivalence about the budget here in Alberta, I think, represents many people's uh, view on that thing. I mean, uh, as you know, Kareem, we've got an NDP government here in Alberta for the first time. Uh, and since 2015, for the first time in 40 plus years. So uh, people aren't necessarily sure what to expect when you have a government that uh, has a more progressive bent than past governments presenting a budget. And uh, what we expected and what we did see was, you know, holding the line on on growth, uh, on on expense um, increases, but it was also a big spend budget. They wanted to ensure that their mm-hmm. urban constituencies, which they need to retain for the next election, which here in Alberta will be 2019, okay, uh, yeah, provincial election in 2019, have those those goodies that they need: more schools, more hospitals, more urban centric infrastructure. Interesting. This was a budget that appeased two cities: Calgary and Edmonton. Calgary and Edmonton. Yeah, man. And, and everyone in between is left out. Well, for this, and, and not not so much left out, but okay. like I think what people don't understand, or what people sometimes forget about budgets, it's it's not that it's just policy. It's not just numbers and cents. It's mm-hmm. also a political document. It very much highlights where their priorities are as a government, right? So you'll see this not just here provincially, or you know, if you're in Ontario or BC when your government drops their budget proverbially mm. it's not just about saying here's where we're spending the money it's also about saying the reason we're spending the money here is because we care more about this and the reason we care more about this is because there's a direct tie into the voters and the type of voters we care more about mm-hmm. that's simply what this is and at the end of the day the NDP know that their most accessible pathway to victory does not include rural Alberta right so it includes ensuring that urban parts of this province which are more progressive than the rural parts of this province, a simple sort of calculation, are where they need to play. And that's where they're hoping that they can make this bet on, is ensuring that the the jobs hopefully come back to some of these urban parts, Mm -hmm. but ensuring that when 2019, when our election comes up, that they can be seen as the party that didn't, you know, cut, uh, you know, the services that young families that mm-hmm. that people that live in cities need the most yeah it, it, it was very interesting for me to to listen to cbc radio mm-hmm. driving in between 
here in Edmonton and Banff for the past few days. Um, and, you know, to all of these call-in shows. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, you know, a, a few things pop, popped into my head. Um, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've got a nephew and niece, a nephew who is in his second year university, niece is in grade 11. Okay. Um, and a, um, a family member through them that is currently in the hospital. Okay. Um, you know, so I'm seeing, and, 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 a, and a, sorry, and a, and a, uh, and a cousin who works in the public sector. Yeah. So I'm seeing all of these... Perspectives. Perspectives. Totally. So I yeah. see the perspective of um, someone who lives in Alberta who is proud uh, that uh, for for many years that Alberta was the economic engine um, for, for Canada. Right. Um, someone who is uh, proud that there's no provincial sales tax. Mm-hmm. Um, but who is who has kids in university who have who have who has kids that are, are growing up in this province and is is very concerned that not about the lack of support for services but the you know when I coming from Ontario when I see the 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 deficit for this year in Alberta yeah was it seventeen billion. Uh, so that so that we've it? we've got a deficit of ten point four ten point four uh, which was reduced to ten point three and an overall debt that by twenty nineteen will hit about seventy billion seventy yeah um, which which is big in of itself it's massive in terms of it's massive yeah. and we're not used to it here in Alberta I think that's the biggest yes. thing, right like like we are we have had this thing since the early nineties called the Alberta Advantage right it was it was a political sort of moniker developed around a kitchen table very similar to this one in the 1990s by Ralph Klein who was yeah. our premier then and he he advocated that Alberta had this distinct advantage we have all this goddamn oil in the ground we might as well take advantage of it mm-hmm. which means that we could fund things and maybe to a certain degree live beyond our means and ever since then ever since we've had downturns and then upswings and downturns and upswings from those from the 1990s this moniker has remained in the minds of people mm-hmm. and they've always tethered it uh, and tethered the reality to this, being like, oh, we're losing the Alberta advantage, right? We're u- losing the fact that, you know, if we spend more than we actually have, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're losing this Alberta advantage. And, and what governments have been afraid to do yeah. politically uh-huh. is actually grapple with the real issue here. And the real issue is re- here is really simple. Uh, you need to pay for the services you want as a province. Yeah. Simple. So, period. So, right? And we've never really dealt with that because mm-hmm. we've always uh, tethered our future forecasting to the price of oil. Price we've of oil. always tethered everything to having hopefully this upswing where it's currently $45 a barrel, but for next year's budget, I'm pinning it at 72 And that's totally out of whack. No, that's exactly what happens here. Yeah. That is just like to people from outside, like that seems crazy, but that is legit what happens here. We pin everything to a predicted price of oil, which is always debated. So right now, oil sits at around hovers around 50 it has been for the last year or so let's say it hovers around 50 we're projecting at 65 next year and someone and and these projections are totally sometimes out of the blue Uh, no other forecaster agrees with them but this is how we do our budgeting and have been doing it since the 90s which Mm -hmm. is we pin it to the price of oil hopefully it gets there if it doesn't we blame it on the price of oil yeah and we haven't actually dealt with the foundational question which is you know how do we pay legitimately right as a household would for the services and for the for the expenditures we want to take on. So mm-hmm. we haven't dealt with those underlying issues, whether that be an NDP problem or previously a progressive conservative government problem. So when I hear about, you know, uh, 
funding for 10 schools, mm -hmm. funding for new hospitals. Mm -hmm. I think in my head, where were where were these schools? Why were these schools not being built when the when the price of oil was more than 50, more than $65? Like why weren't these quote-unquote smart intelligent people forecasting that hey, something might happen. We know where things are going. Why don't we start all this money that comes in this Alberta advantage? Why aren't we investing into building and maintaining our infrastructure so that, God forbid, price of oil dips and stays there for a long period of time? We still have the nice house to live in, right? It's not like, oh, shoot. Yeah, I think, I think part of it is there's been certain miscalculations as to where the future demographics of this province are going. And what I mean by that is I don't just mean on age... Uh, which some of these things apply on. But I think there's a political misforecasting as well within this province. I mm -hmm. mean, w many people think that are outside of this province feel like this NDP uh, surge came out of nowhere. And many people feel like it's super strange to them that Calgary, the city we're sitting in right now, has this progressive brown Muslim mayor, yeah. right? That Edmonton has this 35-year-old progressive mayor themselves people are like how does this happen is this an anomaly and i think what's ended up happening in this province is people have forgotten that politics as an indicator is usually a trailing indicator and what i mean by that okay. is that politics is usually the last thing to fall into line when everything else is in place so mm -hmm. people thought when nenshi came here in 2009 2010 uh, to run for mayor that calgary on um, like the turn of a dime became this progressive political city and that's not the case, right? <laughs> Politics is usually a, a, a last sort of duck-in-the-row representation of the current reality rather than a leading indicator. Mm -hmm. And so the demographics were already in place. We were already, you know, becoming more of an, an art consumption city. Calgary still remains to, and, and still to this day, despite our recession, is the number one city in this country where people pay for the arts. Number one, mm. not just per capita, period, mm. right? We've got, we've got, we've, we've grown our, our urban sort of, uh, density. We've grown our arts consumption. We've grown our, our um, urban infrastructure, both in terms of things like cycle tracks, uh, LRT, and public transport. Uh, politics was a, was, was a trailing indicator. It didn't say, you didn't have the politicians advocate for these things. The people were already here and politics fell into place. Mm -hmm. And so by me telling you that, I, and I also around like the, the, the NDP here, uh, them coming into office was 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 a trailing indicator. Alberta has more young people than old people uh, by far. We are going to be, even despite our financial uh, downturn recently, the only province in this country that has more people between eighteen and twenty-five than they do between eighteen and thirty-five than they do sixty-five plus. Every other province is going to be, and not to say we're not grappling with this, you know, older baby boomer population that is now going to need their resources and support. A hundred percent, we've got that issue, like every other province. Mm -hmm. But we also have this this group of young people, this eighteen to thirty-five cohort, which outstrips that older cohort. And if you think about that, that you've got these two progressive cities in Calgary and Edmonton, you've got this population that's 18 to 35 that outstrips the older population. Simultaneously, you've had underemployment in this province in the last couple of years. And then I told you that there's an NDP government in place. You'd be like, that makes a ton of sense.
right? You got 18 to 35 dominating your population. You got mm. people who felt like they were underemployed. You have these two progressive cities that already have fallen into place uh, with their representation in 2010 and 2013, respectfully. And then I told you in 2015, an NDP government would come along. You'd be like, that actually makes a ton of sense with that narrative. Mm. But what I'm trying to tell you in that very long-winded statement yeah. is that there's been a miscalculation of demographics as to what our province actually is. We've got a lot of young families. We've got a lot of young people who want to stay here, right? The neighborhood I'm in, tons of young families, you know, parents between the ages of 28 to 40, right? Like that dominates our urban landscape here. Hmm. So number one, there's a political miscalculation when we had these growth times. Number two, there's also been this political sort of battle, uh, even amongst the conservative class here in Alberta, as to what... Uh, we should spend on, despite interest rates being low, and, and, and even today, sure. even today, we have low, yeah. really low rates. We have ailing and aging infrastructure, bridges, roads, highways, uh, and opportunities alongside that to complete a ring road, to complete an underpass, to complete a tunnel. Uh, and it's, you know, construction is not going to get cheaper. Uh, materials, raw materials are not going to get cheaper. Mm -hmm. And the ability to take on this, this financing is not going to get cheaper. Yet we still have a debate in this province, as we do nationally. I shouldn't limit this to, I mean, Trudeau's infrastructure bill, $20 billion over 10 years, has having the same debate is, sure. oh my God, should we take this debt on? And the argument by, by more progressive factions is, yes, we should, because rates will never be lower and we'll be having an ability to pay back on the back end. So this, this, this larger debate of miscalculation of demographics uh, alongside uh, this debate of should we actually take on any more spending and any more debt uh, has probably led to us in a situation right now where we're mm -hmm. like, oh, crap, we've got no other choice. Yeah. Right? We, we've got, the choice we have today is do we spend beyond our means because our means are very low or do we do an austerity style budget? Or do we do austerity style spending? And and I think uh, is it black and white? Is is that is there only two choices? Or is, there's no the hybrid point? of those two choices yeah. exists. Yeah. But Kareem, the hybrid of those two choices is politically unpopular with either side, and that's what and that's inherently when we talk about budgets. This is a political document as much as it is a policy document. Interesting. Right? Choose a path because the middle of them is actually is, is going to be one that neither your base nor, nor the opposition uh, necessarily like. And you're going to be in this middle ground where both sides are going to characterize you uh, as, as failing to live up to something. Interesting. So in, in your opinion, what, what was this budget? Was it... Was it um, you know, you being here, a progressive living in Calgary. Sure, um, yeah. You know, you're part of that demographic um, that you talked about. Um, this was a quality of life for urban Alberta budget. That's how I see it. Okay. This was like, we're spending on schools, we're spending on hospitals. Yeah. We're spending on schools for his kids. We're spending on hospitals for your aging parents. Mm -hmm. And we're spending on infrastructure so you can get to your job, to your, you know, your whatever recreation, to your... To your sustainable activities in this province for the next 50, 80, 90 years yeah. longer. This was an urban Alberta insure quality of life budget. And like I said earlier, this is as much as it is numbers and dollars and cents. This mm -hmm. is about the voter that they feel like they can retain and grow with. And that's the urban Alberta voter here. So now if we... You know, that's a perspective looking at it from, you know, ground zero. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we if we take a, you know, 20,000 foot view of it uh, and take a look at the province as a whole, what do you what do you think this budget means? Um, I'm not sure. And I think that's probably going to be the consensus that some people might be like, it means that we're headed towards more more debt financing down the road. Some people mean it think it may mean to a enhanced um, uh, sort of band or parade for conservative parties to get back into power. 
What I do think it means is what I said earlier, which mm. is I think the appetite for this is a lot bigger than people think. Okay. Um, and I think we saw that with the federal election where Justin Trudeau, when he was running, arguably on many issues, outflanked Tom Mulcair to the left. On the left, yeah. Yeah, yeah like he, he ultimately was like, oh, no, 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 we're going to be the ones taking on debt financing. We're the ones that are going to be significantly more progressive in our social policies. And Tom Mulcair, who's in that lead, I don't know if you remember the history of that. Yes. Right? He was leading like by double digits in August with an October election coming up, already measuring the size of the curtains in the prime minister's <laughs> office, right, or getting ready to was outflanked by the guy who was supposed to be the centrist. Yeah. And it was a bold move by Trudeau to do that. Uh, but the appetite for that bad policy you saw existed, or those sort of policies on affordable housing and homelessness, on infrastructure spending, on debt financing, existed a lot more in spades than I think people anticipated. Mm -hmm. And what became a very niche progressive point of view, uh, Trudeau was able to elevate to becoming a little bit more mainstream. Uh, so my, 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 my comment to you, Kareem, is that I think that appetite exists here more in Alberta. I think if you're outside Alberta, uh, don't be surprised if the NDP put up a real fight in the next election for re-election. I think right now they are the favorites to win. I think, I think people in this province will disagree with me vigorously about yeah. that. But as long as the right, which is, you know, and we can talk about that here in this province, mm -hmm. or we can talk about literally anything, but the right, <laughs> you know, but the right is is trying to coalesce around the leadership of uh, of, of a single party uh, and a few names thrown around, Jason Kenney being the more popular one. Actually, we sit here on a Friday recording. Uh, they head into a convention, the Progressive Conservatives, which had ruled this province for 40 plus years, yeah. head into a convention this weekend here to elect their new, uh, new leader. And by all accounts, it seems like Jason Kenney is going to be that guy, former federal cabinet minister, uh, federal conservative cabinet minister, yeah. is going to be that guy. He is running on a singular platform of uniting the right. There's two right-wing parties here, yeah. the PCs, uh, which maybe represent more of a center-right perspective, and the Wild Rose, which have gone further to the right, both on social and fiscal issues. He wants to uh, effectively amalgamate the two parties and create a united right-wing party. Mm -hmm. I personally think that is the best news for the NDP, because as long as, cause in Alberta, mm -hmm. we have a very weak middle representation, because if the conservatives move to the right mm -hmm. with this united right-wing party, the NDP have an opportunity to not only retain their base on the left, this quality of life, urban Alberta budget voter that I talked to you about, yeah. but they also have an ability to go to the middle in the next two years before the election. And that middle is currently unoccupied in this province because there is, we've got something called the Alberta Liberal Party, which has got, you'd expect it would be a powerhouse considering its federal um, cousin, but... One member, I think. One member party, my man. Yeah. And you've got the Alberta party, which is very similar. One member, really good guy. Both, both have really good people. Uh, but just one of them and not much of an infrastructure. Yeah. So as it stands right now, the middle is wide open and that's where I see the NDP being able to play. So if you're outside of this province and frankly, even if you're in this province, uh, the Alberta NDP, you know, have been making some really interesting moves. Do mm. I personally agree with all of them? No. But do I feel like they may be the, uh, I hate to kind of say this, the hold your nose choice for 2019 for many people? Mm. I certainly do. And this province has done that in the past. They've held their nose and they've voted a certain way. We did it in 2012 when we had Alison Redford against Danielle Smith of the Wild Rose. When Alison Redford was this unpopular progressive conservative but the Wild Rose had something called Bozo Eruptions, where they came out uh, and certain members came out within their party of having anti-homophobic, anti-progressive mm. uh, sort of social views. And Albertans said, uh-uh, that's not who we are. And they voted PC. And we saw the same thing happen to some degree with the NDP getting in yeah. when they just had, had enough of the PC. So 
I really interestingly see the NDP being a lot more of a threat, especially if they continue down this pathway and actually move more to the middle, which I think is every part of their, their agenda in the next two years. So there's my very long-winded answer to your, to your question. It's very interesting you, yeah. you, you end uh, that thought with that because um, you know, uh, a non-scientific poll that, that I took this past week at my um, sister-in-law's... That's the best kind of poll, my man. You yeah. know, was, was that you know, she hasn't done anything wrong. Um, but still very, you know, conservative um, voting people, you know, yep. in, 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 yep. in that home. Um, and, and to me, it was like, you know what, this is maybe just like when, when Bob Ray was, um, was, was elected in Ontario. Sure. It, it was just a backlash. Sure. I'm sure as you remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. just a backlash. And, you know, it, it would be the first and the last time. And, and Alberta, and again, I'm coming from outside. Totally. You know. Uh, totally. And, and, you know, you've educated me in terms of the demographics of here in Alberta t- today. You know, from the outside looking in, it's like, yeah, Alberta will go back, you know. And, the- and, and listen, I'm, I'm not saying it very well can't. But here's, here's the argument that I think the NDP are trying to play. If we want to get into this for a second. Yeah. Um, I think they're trying to move. And so in, so in politics, and maybe this we can talk, this is kind of like the, the foray into campaign strategy and what I do, right? Sure, sure, sure. So when we, when we construct a campaign narrative, right? Mm-hmm. As a campaign, we sit around the table with the candidate and the entire campaign team. There's something we call a ballot box question, right? And we, as a campaign, ultimately want a, a ballot box question that is engineered from our side of the campaign. So what do I mean by this? Well, the ballot box question in simplest form is a question you want the voter to have in their mind when they enter the ballot box, right? So last election, let me kind of give you an example. Last federal election, I think everyone will will kind of be able to relate to this. The ballot box question, arguably, not for everybody, but you try to get most people on this as you can. And I don't think Trudeau did this as a strategic play, but I think he lucked into this and took advantage of it, which I think is just as valuable. The ballot box question for many people, when they went in the ballot box and said, okay, Stephen Harper, Tom Mulcair, or Justin Trudeau, by proxy of their MP locally, mm-hmm. were thinking, the question was, what does it mean to be a Canadian? Because mm-hmm. we had gotten to a point where the debate was so much about this niqab ban, this, yeah. you know, this, they brought this conservatives, have brought this strategist from, uh, from the UK, Lyndon Crosby, who would very much, you know, run these anti-separation campaigns. And we really had this this narrative of saying, what does it mean to be Canadian? This whole concept of multiculturalism, Canadian values dominated the last three weeks. And I think Trudeau stood on the right side of that question, where he stood up and said, this is what Canadian values means. I've had the historical uh, baggage, not baggage, sorry, I've had the historical sort of credibility to speak to this question. And he very much kind of, even against Tom Mulcair, who took this half measure around the niqab ban, you know, r- denied it, but then also wanted that to... That was strange. It was weird, because, because he had a Quebec base to play for, right? Yeah. He had this weird... Because Tom Mulcair's one of his biggest assets was that he could totally freaking dominate Quebec. But the problem was, for him, he needed to take this fine line around anything in re- related to social issues, especially around, related to, like, cultural fabric issues, because he had this fine line to play for in Quebec, and he didn't want to lose them. Whereas Trudeau was able to take a lot bolder, broader stance on this stuff and frame that ballot box question. So anytime you get into a campaign, as, as a campaign manager or campaign strategist, you have a question you want people to vote on. And you know that if people's, in their mind, you have implanted that question and they're voting on that question, that your party or your candidate is gonna, it has the best chance of being the answer to that question, right? Mm-hmm. If I am a coffee company and I'm competing against another beverage company, my whole take is gonna be very different, right? And that's how they view these campaigns is the question 
question that you want people, you know, is like, which one gives me the highest caffeine kick, right? If that's the question people have about beverages overall, as a coffee company, you're going to win, right? If you're competing with beverages, right? Like writ large, if you're competing with water and soda, you are going to win if you're coffee. And that's very much how it works in politics is that you have a deliberate question you want people to consider. And you know that your party or your candidate is going to be the answer to that question. And so in 2019, I expect the NDP to create their question around which party or which candidate in Alberta really speaks to you on social issues. Because what I think they're gearing up for is a Jason Kenney-led conservative movement, which and they want to go after Jason Kenney's social values. Jason Kenney is not progressive on social values. Mm -hmm. Jason Kenney has um, taken a very in-between stance on things like gay marriage, despite it being law, right? Uh, very in-between stance on, on things like, you know, gay pride parades, on LGBT issues, on, on race relations, on Canadian value issues, uh, on, uh, on abortion issues, uh, things that don't even realm into politics provincially. But the NDP know that if they can hold a decent, steady hand on economics and have people in the ballot box when they mark their X and have to choose between these parties, consider the social ramifications of electing someone like Jason Kenney and say, is that a reflection of who I want to be? Despite me being a conservative, can I vote for a guy who is an, who's socially conservative? Despite me being a fiscal conservative, can I vote for a guy who's so socially conservative or so socially ambiguous? Does that stand for who I am as an Albertan? The mm -hmm. NDP are betting on that question heading into 2019. What, what if that's not the question, though? Then they lose. Right? Cause what, cause then they lose. From my perspective, the question is, who do you trust with your money? And, 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 and the conservatives will try to make it that question. Yeah. And, and you know what? You can have that question dominate the news cycle, mm -hmm. right? Because leading into 2019, or 2015, uh, sorry, with the uh, federal election, yeah. Stephen Harper tried really, really hard around leadership and economics and, and ensuring that, that the steady hand, don't change horses, steady hand argument that he had mm -hmm. dominated, right? It dominated and Tom Mulcair was beating him on that issue, but it was the issue that Stephen Harper had, had set up. So Harper was totally fine getting interim dominated by Mulcair on that issue because he had set the question. And he knew that people would ultimately revert back to the... If you can set the problem yourself on your terms, you have a much better chance of being the answer to that problem, hmm. right? And that's what Harper was doing. And, and he dominated the cycle, but it was ultimately the last two weeks of that campaign, especially considering that this was the longest federal campaign it in was. Canadian history, right? Because yeah. you elongated it with dropping it uh, early. And so what we see here in Alberta is that narrative could very much dominate but the NDP will hold off in the final two weeks to ensure and try their best mm -hmm. that that's so at least and this is me, you know, pontificating yeah. two years out. Right. But if I'm setting their strategy today, and this very yeah. much could well could change. This is what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. So when I tell you earlier that I think they have a good a good chance, I think they've got a good chance on a few things. Number one, setting up the social agenda uh, for, for what they want uh, and ensuring that they can hold the hands steady. On, on fiscal issues. Number two, they want to have this battle. They want to have this like war mm -hmm. on social issues because they know Albertans, while they care about their bank account, they're betting. This is the bet to yeah. your question. They're, this is the bet that while they care about their bank account, they can say, you know what? The NDP weren't so bad on fiscal issues, but at least they represent me a lot better than, than the conservatives and this amalgamated conservative uh, group does on, on social issues. The bet here is that as much as I care about my bank account, I care about 
you know, the social fabric of this province a lot more. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who want to vote on that. The question is, can the NDP get enough people to vote on that? That's going to be the battle. That's like that's ultimately the battle in my mind. It'll be interesting to It'll see. It'll be really interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. Um, let, let's let's take a, a, a detour here. Mm-hmm. How, how did you get involved? You know, as, as a political strategist. You know, what's what's your background? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's weird, right? Because most people don't even really understand what a what a campaign strategist role does. But we just uh, watched West Wing and we figure we yeah know. yeah yeah. <laughs> but honestly, like my 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 masthead. If there was like a if like if, if on my CV I could write like a one line biography yeah, yeah. for me, it was like uh, volunteering is the gateway to work. And, and, and for okay. me, that's where it started, right? Okay. Politics was, was something I had found, I found like later in like my university career. I had really no idea that it was a professional sort of work or job that you could do. Um, and so for me, it was really like volunteering on political campaigns, knocking on doors, right? And it started around like 2009, 2010. I came back to Calgary. Um, there was a guy that was running for mayor uh, in Northeast Calgary. He had like 1% in the polls and I'd known him socially prior to then. Yeah. He's like, you need to door knock for me. And I'm like, I'm definitely not door knocking for you and your ridiculous purple signs. And he's like, <laughs> you need to door knock for me. And the next thing I know, I'm wearing a purple t-shirt that says Nenshi for mayor on it. And this campaign was, you know, if, if I can call politics a drug, this was like my cocaine, like legit, like watching how this campaign unfolded here. And I think there's a very much like a mythologized national narrative to the Nenshi victory in 2010, Mm -hmm. but, but learning from the inside as to what got this thing uh, going, how a guy that was a total unknown in 2010 Mm -hmm. from 1% in the polls, three months out to getting, you know, uh, a, a, a tremendous, you know, uh, eight or nine point nine point margin victory, uh, over two name brands within the city was like, I'm in it. I'm in it. Right. I love this sort of stuff. So from 2010 and and experiencing that campaign, I'm happy to talk more about like the learnings from that and kind of the relationships from that that have led me to kind of doing more stuff around this. I kind of like both, you know, worked on and managed and volunteered all through those capacities. I think that's one of the most interesting things about politics in Canada is that Hmm. there's not many people that could pay to do this, man. Like it's one of those (laughs) things like paid uh, is like is like the epitome. But like in politics, it's really a passion project. You volunteer because you're passionate about it. You volunteer and you contribute your time and maybe you get like a small honorarium to do what you want to do. But for me, like I was like I was hooked. Right. So I like worked on like 12 campaigns in the next four years all across, whether it was Alberta, some in Ontario, uh, in the States a bit, um, kind of working on all sorts of campaigns and trying to get my hands and become a practitioner. And just volunteering and trying to learn. As volunteering as and sometimes being like, you know, I can, I can contribute a couple of months here and here's, and they're like, great, here's a small $500 honorarium. Can you do that? And it's like obviously yeah. hundreds of hours of work, but yes, I'd love to do it. And trying to become like a, you know, 360 degree practitioner in every element of this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, from managing a campaign, which is such an interesting role. Uh, and I've been trying to get more young people involved in politics simply because I think politics is this really interesting beast where you you start maybe with two months runway and you shut it down just as when you're getting good. Mm-hmm. It's like doing a startup, getting to scale and saying, or just getting to the tip of getting to scale and saying, oh, now we can grow our user base 10x. Like, you know, if politics on election day, you had another month after that, you could probably get 10x the amount of people to buy into your cause. Yeah. But the amazing part of it is it's like, you're shutting it down, you're starting all over again, right? Yeah. And, the, and the high of that is really interesting, but it's also one of those things where you get such a 
wide bandwidth of skills, right? Managing a team, managing up, managing a candidate that's sometimes 15, 20 years your senior and trying to guide them into what they need to do as a politician, what their role is on a campaign. Mm -hmm. Managing a team of, of communications professionals, of, you know, volunteers, of finance people, of tech people. Uh, you know, so it's this wide bandwidth. So for me, uh, I spent the years after the Nenshi campaign trying to get as much latitude in this game as I could. Mm -hmm. Everything from polling and research to communications to digital marketing and technology to managing a few campaigns to uh, to running the numbers to running voter mobilization and voter ID to running get out the vote, which is a huge uh, portion of politics, which is the last 24 to 36 hours. How do you get everyone that you've identified in a campaign to actually show up and vote for your candidate? Yeah. Like, so I kind of spent that time, the, the three, four years after that, just deep diving and trying to become a, like a raw practitioner in this stuff. Very and some paid, some volunteer, but like, it was just about like, I was addicted and I need to kind of get in this game. So uh, side of my desk, that's, that was kind of my, my life. Interesting. So, so tell me about the, the Nenshi campaigns from, you know, my perspective, you know, full disclosure, uh, my dad's brother married into the Nenshi family. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, you know, we, we, I've heard the last name before. Um, he, he was on CBC Radio nationally. Sure, yeah. Uh, had an afternoon program or a mid-morning program, I remember. He was on a, a, a panel. And, and that's all that I knew. And, yeah. And, and, and I would see my cousin's posts on Facebook about Nahid Nenshi, and I go, yeah, he's... A brown guy in Calgary, I don't think so. Yeah. No. That's the, you know, again, I didn't know the, the demo, the, demo, the demographics here. How do you go from 1% to being the mayor? Well, let me tell you something. To, that, to your comment, I'm going to answer, register that at first. I'm going to, I'll love to walk you through the campaign, and I'm going to footnote the credit that goes to kind of this narrative in a second. But uh, a brown guy in Calgary, you sitting in Toronto, that was your sort of narrative, being like, I don't think so? Of course. Dude, I was literally neighbors with this guy, and I was like, <laughs> I don't think so, right? <laughs> And it's not because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't see the skill set, or I didn't see the. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm yelling into your mic here. That's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm like just banging and yelling. It's not because I didn't see the pedigree, because like super qualified guy. Mm -hmm. It's not because I didn't see the charisma or wit, because holy crap, that's also there. Uh, it's because I, like many people, felt like politics had to be to, to my first point. Politics had to be a leading indicator rather than a trailing indicator, mm. right? I thought that someone had to kind of give permission for something like this to happen before yeah, yeah. the piece. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah. Before the pieces were already there and the people were like, oh, we don't, no, no, we're ready to make this happen. Like, uh, yeah, brown guy in Calgary who we've known as not even brown guy in Calgary. We've just known as guy in Calgary who's smart and capable and shows up to civic stuff and is like super articulate about issues related to civic infrastructure, who's super articulate about issues related to politics and people and community fabric. Mm -hmm. That's how they saw him. And like, that's not a campaign line. But the way Calgary saw Nahed Nenshi was very much that skin color removed, you know, even race removed, ethnicity removed, religious practice removed. This was a hyper competent, witty, charismatic 40 something, or in that case, late 30 something. Yeah who uh, just knew his shit. Hmm. I don't know if I can say that. Sorry, I hope I can swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who just knew his shit, right? Yeah. And for me, as a guy who was just getting out of university and coming back to that, I had the good fortune of, of uh, getting into that campaign around the time where, you know, when he was the hitting that 1% and that 1% became 3%. And many people credit this role of social media. Um, 
and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take credit for this because there's a guy that, that I have, have the pleasure to frequently work with, which is a guy by the name of Stephen Carter. And Stephen and I, uh, alongside another guy, Corey, shared a podcast called The Strategist where we break down all this sort of stuff yeah. around politics and such. But Stephen was the campaign strategist for Nahid Nenshi. And, and that's how I met Stephen. Okay. So Stephen was like this chief architect for this campaign. And he further then went on to be the guy that, that was the chief architect of the campaign for Alison Redford and was chief of staff to her mm. uh, in, in, the, in the provincial government. But Stephen would tell you this, and I'm going to kind of tell his story, but this was a campaign that was less about... Uh, social media savvy and figuring out and of course the attention of people at that point in time was on social media and someone who was fluent and a native in that helped but this was about finding a base of people who actually engage with Nenshi on on rather than rather than finding the group of people that we thought would engage on the issue let me explain um, the biggest and core demographic that Nahid Nenshi appealed to was the effectively the soccer mom demographic. It was mm. not people that look like you and I. Yeah. It was not people who were uh, our parents' age in their 60s living in you know places like, in our case, Northeast Calgary, which you'd expect would be the first group to come out for a guy, the only ethnic minority running. He's a product of Northeast Calgary. You know, these, these uh, areas that have uh, you know, generated some of the, the greater success stories of people that have brown skin like you and I, my friend. Sure. But that was not his base. Hmm. The base that we found for him, because going back to the frame, they didn't view him as that. Calgary did not view him as the brown colored Muslim mayor. They viewed him as a hyper competent, civic engaged dude. And do and you know who spoke to that? Was, was, the, was the mom group initially. So initial, our initial group of like hyper engaged supporters was this group of people who, who figured that, you know, I, have you heard of this Nahid Nenshi guy? They would tell their other, you know, uh, mothers as they'd pick up their kids from school. And that's where it grew. And it was about creating a structure of finding these hyper engaged people that would then bring in their networks, right? So we, we you know, one of the tactics that 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 uh, Chima, who's currently now Nahid's chief of staff, uh, but was campaign manager back then, and Stephen and others uh, ran was something called coffee parties. Really simple process. Hmm. If you like Nahid, yeah, right. If you like Nahid, invite five other people to 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 your house, and he will come and spend an hour with you. Wow. And the goal for those coffee parties was singular: find another person at that coffee party who would host another coffee party. Interesting. And you can see that by the power of getting four people in a room, the next person would bring in eight. And out of those eight, you'd get two more people who'd host another thing. Yeah. And, and it was just using this concept that today we call influencer marketing, yeah, right? Yeah. You've heard of this thing. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It, Finding people on Instagram that can sell a product because they speak to their audience better than you can ever speak to your audience if you're Nike or Reebok or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the Nahid Nenshi campaign. Wow. Using people who were influencers within their own circle, finding out who that core base was, right? This initial tier. And then getting people and saying one by one, right? One by one. So as much as this was, this was a campaign of tension. This was a campaign that said, we've got this guy who's social media savvy, witty responses, says funny shit all the time, has really good, like quick witted responses to people on this medium and and really knows how to play in this native game. But then on the campaign side, one by one, Hmm. like literally one by one, getting people in a room and saying, bring 12 people out, Nahid will come and see you. Bring, and then the bar became higher. Get 16 people to a coffee party and, 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 and Nahid will come to see you. And as soon as he started getting up higher in the polls, if you can get 20 people in a room, Nahid will come and see you for a coffee party. And the last coffee party, the, election, the day before the election, was 300 people where people were standing out on the lawn. And it's like, 
I think we've won this thing. Because at that point, those are 300 new, net new people who would leave that thing and tell another layer beneath them, would yeah. tell another layer beneath them. And it turned out to be an influencer campaign where you had this tension between saying, we're very digitally savvy. We've got a guy who's very policy heavy. The only campaign to put out 10 policy planks in detail, in PDF format. Here's the thing, no one cared about it because it was about forming a brand, right? Mm. And it really worked because it said, we're gonna have this guy put out 10 policy planks and he's gonna have detailed PDFs, five pages each on each one of these policy planks. All that told people, like the penetration on the, on the click-throughs on that, on that policy page were like 1%. Yeah. But all people needed to know was like, smartest guy in the room. That's all I need to know. All that reinforced to him was smartest guy in the room and, and he was fine. So he's policy heavy. Yeah. He's witty and charming. And we figured out who the core hyper-evangelist supporters were. And then we asked them to layer out. And, and, and grow a campaign. Very interesting. That's what it was, man. Yeah. Like, that's the story from the inside. And, and I mean, working in 2013 and working on other campaigns, that's how these things grow is, is you know, you very much, you know, have this air war that you're, like, out there broadcasting, engaging. But it's very much about identifying people and engaging people on their terms, right? And as we move into more digital, mobile, first universe, uh, problems and challenges for someone like myself who will be running campaigns and, and, and strategizing on campaigns is how do we find people where their attention is today Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to kind of replicate and not to f forego this whole one-on-one -on -one interaction of getting the candidate to show up to your house over coffee. A hundred percent want to do that. But how do you kind of create the similar gateways that uh, allow you to do that in a mobile first world? These are the challenges we face, but the principles are so old and dated, right? We'll go, if you like, you know, someone was telling me the other day, you know, have you heard of this new Instagram influencer marketing thing? And I was like, dude, influencer marketing has been around for like hundreds of years, right? The concept of me telling you, Cream, to buy this coffee cup versus the maker of this coffee cup telling you to buy it is going to be significantly better because I'm vouching for it, yeah. right? Like, it's like me being like, yo, that harp behind me, that's a great version of a harp you should buy. Yeah. Rather than you getting infiltrated with thousands of dollars of ads for harps, me giving you that recommendation means a lot more. That's powerful. happened for years. Yeah. That's the basis of any campaign, man. That's interesting. It's about, it's about taking those general, dated, old school principles and putting them into context of the new world, right? We see that with Obama as well. 2008, people thought Obama's campaign had like created this outstanding new concept, which was like, we're going to allow people to have uh, a, uh, log into a website and keep track of their community and figure out like, okay, if I live right here, I'm going to have a four mile radius and I'm going to be a champion for Barack Obama in this four mile radius and I'm going to keep track of voter support in the four mile radius. Mm -hmm. The principle has been around since the ancient Greeks. It was called precinct captains. This concept of, 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 of yeah, Greeks, yeah. when they voted, was you'd have someone in the community who would effectively, in that case, not go door to door, but effectively go whatever they lived in back then, right? Yeah. Would go and be like, hey, how do you feel on this issue? How do you feel on this issue? How do you feel on this issue? What are you thinking about this going on? And they would aggregate points of view and bring it up to the top and say, here's what's going on in my neck of the woods. Keep mm -hmm. a pulse on it. And the principle is so old, all that Obama did was layer on a new version of technology or a new practical application. So, I mean, what we look at in politics is that the tools and the, and the principles of, you know, having influencer marketing, of having one-on-one -on -one interaction, of having these tools of campaigning are, are, are centuries old, but it's how do you apply them to the new world that we all live in where our attention is currently. Interesting. And so that's what we're doing. And that's what Nenshi's campaign was in 2010. He was lu not lucky, but had great strategy with, with their team, which was exceptional, um, to figure out what that looked like uh, in, in the sense of where attention was and who people kind of were in, the, in that regard as well.
So that's kind of that's kind of you know the bulk of that story. So how do you go from you know a, a relative uh, political unknown, although very you know well known as, as a smart guy, and you know going to these you know coffee drop-ins, yeah, um, to introduce himself and 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 his um, his thoughts um, to now running for re-election, you know, mm-hmm. three four years later, yeah. Um, Seven years later, right now, yeah, yeah. But you know, with the first one, right? Yeah, that's right. Twenty thirteen, where that's right. where everyone knows him. Oh, yeah, I know him. He's he's our mayor. We know what he stands for. We know what he's voted for. We know what he's built. We know what he hasn't done. How do you? Is, is there a transition, or do you follow that's the same? A great movement? question. I mean, uh, globally speaking, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of politics is that um, the incumbents have a name brand, and reinventing re- incumbents is is difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think incumbents have going for them is as much as track record can be a baggage, track record can be a, an indicator of success. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like it's, you know, uh, out of my 10 policies, I've accomplished six, and that's six of them in three years. Here's the results of it. Here's people who vouch for that. Here's what that looks like. Uh, elect me to kind of uh, move forward and, and, and solidify this thing and, and, and kind of... Um, uh, really continue on this this trajectory of success. The same challenge Obama faced in 2012. You know, Mitt Romney was today looks like a hero to anybody based on what you know Republican politics stands right now. <laughs> in 2012, he was considered a relatively weak challenger. If Obama had a more difficult challenger at that point in time, where the metrics of difficult and weak probably are a lot more subjective than they were, uh, things would have been different. But one of the biggest challenges he had was how does he. In 2008 was a hope and change campaign. In 2012, you are no longer change. Yeah. Right? Just by definition, you are no longer change. Mm-hmm. Right? So how do you extend the narrative and have to say the, jobs, uh, the job needs to be done? And I think that's about ensuring that, that as a candidate, you don't get complacent about who supported you to begin with. You don't get complacent about vision. I think that's one of the things candidates, candidates compla- get complacent about all the time, which is uh, I set out a vision once. I don't need to do it again. I think reinforcing that vision and saying, you know, we've evolved. We've evolved since, if I'm Obama, we've evolved since 2008 and 2012. Here's where we're at. And, and the person to kind of take the trajectory that I've brought you to and kind of reposition it and give us a better chance at winning the future is also going to be me and here's how I would do that. Mm-hmm. We're still halfway through this journey. I hope you can give me the keys for the other half, right? And that was effectively Obama's campaign yeah. uh, in 2012. So I think you've got this inherent advantage incumbents do where the brand is... Is, is, is kind of baked in, but there's also an asset to that brand, which is that track record. I think when we look at local examples of, let's say, when Trudeau runs for re-election, also mm-hmm. in 2019, uh, it's about, you know, uh, how, how much do you tie your identity to that brand? That's something that the mayor here has as well, right, is when many people, both inside and outside of the city, mention the word Calgary, word association usually has Nia Nenshi in the top three. Sure. Right? Stampede. Nenshi was yeah. probably something, something in that order, yeah. right? Stampede Nenshi Oil, like, I don't know, like, it's probably <laughs> something like that, right? For most people. So how much do your, does your, your pride and your civic pride kind of tie into something like this? I think that's also part of the factoration. But it's a good question. There's no, there's no best practice recipe for it. You mm. need to figure out where your candidate is. Sometimes it's a complete rebrand. Sometimes it's a, we're on this trajectory and we need to pinpoint in a little bit different way. And I'm the guy to do that for you. So it really is this, yeah. this, this, this mix, right? Very interesting. Um, can we talk about Trump? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Fuck, I have no idea what I'm going to say. But... <laughs> um, you, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to a, a bunch of people yeah. and, and they've all given me different ideas. You know, one, one thought on, on how he won. 
you know, one thought was uh, a certain demographic of the U.S. population was very concerned about who was going to be uh, a Supreme Court nominee. Mm. Um, another uh, argument was that um, Black America uh, still remembered um, her and her husband. Um, I can't remember what bill it was, but it effectively incarcerated uh, huge numbers of the Black American population, um, and 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 she wasn't forgiven for that. Um, you know, and another part of the uh, another group of people said, um, you know, it was because. Uh, that you know, the the Rust Belt of America um, had been left forgotten uh, in this whole economic recovery that the U.S. experienced after uh, two thousand seven, two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with with your background, um, how did he win? What what was it? Oh man, or was there a number of things? Yeah, I think I think my my top line answer is a perfect storm. Yeah. Um, if I go into what that perfect storm, I think some of those elements that your that your other uh, folks that you've spoken to, whether it's on this podcast or personally, have probably mentioned, uh, do account for that. Um, but the perfect storm, man. Like, I mean, I don't think there's one thing. I think, uh, I think there was a a more global rejection of elites that I think was going on with mm. with Brexit being the leading indicator to that. Actually, in in itself, I think Brexit was a trailing indicator, and uh, the U.S. had underestimated. Um, the U.S. population, or at least more more progressive factions of the U.S. population, had underestimated how um, that had come into uh, fray into their country. So that global rejection of elites, I'd throw that one out there. Um, you had a really tough spot for Hillary Clinton. Uh, so if, if if global rejection is one, Hillary Clinton is number two. And, and amongst that, there's two things about her. Number one, I think she really forgot... Uh, to effectively campaign and lock down the swing states she needed on the math basis Mm -hmm. uh, with not going out and and speaking to people in that Pennsylvania sort of corridor, that Rust Belt corridor. I think that was a mistake. Number two, um, one of the things that I I think has been underreported is a very simple binary that we just talked about, which is uh, people want change after eight years, and she was not the change candidate. Wow. And and I think and I think for some people, I'm not saying a lot of people, but some people, change regardless of what type of change is better than no change. Mm-hmm. And you saw that. So global rejection number two, Hillary Clinton. Two points to that: her her campaign, which was kind of lackluster-ish, mm-hmm. and number two, she was not the change candidate. Number three, uh, I would I would I would talk about this this uh, blue collar worker. Uh, situation, which Donald Trump was able to convince them and speak to them so directly, mm-hmm. so plainly, uh, so what we consider to be unsophisticated language, he probably and they probably consider to be an asset where he spoke to them. He spoke to their motivations, to their difficulties, to their pain points, and gave them a very linear, I am going to solve this pathway. Um, and I think without, uh, and, and I think what didn't register there was the nuance of what actually has taken their jobs away, which is not this, which is not that they weren't able to uh, succeed on the back of this recovery. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> but was largely due to uh, automation of industries, which mm-hmm. their jobs may never come back. And finally, I'd, I'd kind of add is is this this really interesting um, demographic split in the U.S. that we saw, which was around not just white and non-white, but was this. Uh, this threat of the other. I think yes, uh, this, yes. this threat of the other um, 
really try, ties into all of these points, right? The global rejection, Hillary Clinton uh, kind of advocating for more open borders, Hillary Clinton kind of failing to kind of speak to the motivations, uh, these Rust Belt workers, but this rejection and uh, misinterpreting of the others. They're taking our jobs, they're coming into our borders, they're the ones who are now uh, the singular finger point. I think Donald Trump captured that really well. It pains me to kind of say the word capture that really well, <laughs> but I need to... Uh, as 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 like a brown Muslim male who has relatives in the states who suffered through this, and I could very well be on the other side of the border now, sure. feeling like a second class citizen. Like that's real shit. Uh, but on a campaign strategy level, he was able to effectively say everything that ails you: your job, your financial situation, uh, the fact that your kids are getting rejected from universities, the fact that you have a low paid job, the fact that you've been ignored. All of that is to blame one finger point, and it's mm -hmm. a singular enemy: the other. Uh, the border crosser, the Muslim immigrant, the X, the Y, but it's all characterized as the other. Yeah. And the ability to do that and, and, and communicate that to his base and to get them to believe that, that was a strategy. And That's like, a massive base. It turned out to be a massive base. It turned out, uh, it turned out to be a base that, that increasingly throughout that campaign figured they had greater and greater license to know... Uh, to no shortage of the actions of their own candidate, Donald Trump, to start pointing the finger more aggressively mm -hmm. at other people within their borders and without their borders. And I think that really contributed, like this perfect storm, right? Clinton didn't campaign that well. There was a global rejection of elites. People had lost their yeah. jobs and hadn't come on the upswing. And Trump did a, a quote-unquote good job of pinpointing all of that heartache to a singular enemy and use that fear component to mobilize. And I think mm. that's the final one. If I were to add a final one, Voter fucking turnout. Like, yeah. fuck, man. Sorry, I need to swear <laughs> on your podcast. But, like, that's what's up. Yeah. Nearly half of the country didn't vote. Yeah. Right? Nearly half of the country didn't vote. That's what's up. The people who felt like they'd been left behind, whose jobs had been taken, that there was a singular enemy, were significantly more mobilized mm. to show up. Were significantly more mobilized to show up. And if you calculated the other half of the people that didn't show up, I don't want to take a guess, but I'd say the majority of them would have, if they were forced to vote, would have voted Clinton. But like, of course I support Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That guy's a crazy lunatic. But they weren't mobilized enough to vote. And that comes down to like a campaign challenge around incumbents as well. Because mm -hmm. to many degrees, despite them both being non-incumbents, Hillary Clinton was the incumbent. Yeah. Both in the minds of people and the agenda. She was very much the Obama extension, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the challenges incumbents get is if they have a, a competitor that may not even have to be strong, but has supporters that have like beer goggles about how mobilized they need to be. That's what happens, right? Mm. And that's the risk we face here in Alberta or in other places where the other side of the argument, and I speak as a progressive, very much so, um, the other side of the argument, conservatives, uh, to varying degrees, have a sense of saying they're more emboldened than they ever have been before. Our time has come. Yeah. Our time has come, right? And they're more mobilized uh, and more uh, incented to show up, mark their ex, bring out families, bring out friends, all go vote together. Uh, that's what happened here. Donald Trump mobilized the vote better. And despite mm -hmm. not having best practices of campaigning, voter identification, doing all that sort of nitty-gritty stuff, which the Clinton campaign dated themselves out and figured out where supporters were and called every single one, and did you vote, and marked it off the list, and had these technological ways to do that, Donald Trump just won the air game and had just so many more people like riled up in yeah. his side, right? So to your point, and the reason I brought this up, that base is huge, but I would still argue that today in America, 
Uh, if everyone was forced to vote, more people would vote Democrat than, than Republican. But that's not how the game works. The game yeah. works is you don't get to vote. If, you don't get to you don't get to uh, you know not vote and then complain. And fifty percent of that country did not vote. Yeah. And that's the fear in every one of these campaigns, man. Voter turnout was like the biggest one. Interesting. Yeah. You, Perfect storm. Sorry, I'm just going no, on and no, on. But that's we, my answer. We've sort of seen this extension, you know, in in Europe, uh, yes. Netherlands, France, Germany. How and- many people said that they were like, oh man. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Googling Brexit the day after Brexit. Remember that? What does that mean? <laughs> no, what, what is Brexit? What did I vote for? What did I just forget to vote for? Yeah. Oh, what, oh, it meant leaving. I thought leaving was a good thing. I had no idea. Oh, oh, oh you mean I can't travel to the other EU countries on my passport anymore? Shit, I had no idea. Yeah. Like, like that's what that's what the mindset of people who had voted on the other side was. Whereas, once again, the, the people who were no were like. Like, short of having everyone in my family die, I am showing up to the polls and voting. Mm. And on the other side, it was like, I'll see if it fits in my schedule. That's, that's the mobilization difference. Yeah. Right? So when we talk about, like, where someone is on a spectrum, it's not just a left and a right. It's, it's a really different spectrum in politics. It's, it's, it's two spectrums in my mind. There's a, there's a vertical and a horizontal axis. Mm. The horizontal axis is how much do they support you, Right? On the left is not at all, and on the right is you know quite a bit, right? If I'm drawing a spectrum in people's minds, if they're thinking about it. Sure. And then the other, and I think now increasingly in our politics, more important question is, how much do they actually care, right? The up and the down. Hmm. How mobilized are they? Because if they care about you but are low on the mobilization, they're actually a much tougher person to get than someone who sits right in the middle and is super mobilized because they're a lot more gettable yeah. uh, as, as your voter. So wow. that's the struggle that modern campaigns face is not just figuring out how someone agrees with you, if they agree with you, because that's a binary zero and a one, and that doesn't dictate anything, mm-hmm. right? You may agree about my policy point, but if I told you that you needed to jump through nine hoops to actually you know, make it actionable, you may not do that. And for some people, voting is those nine right, hoops, those, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the difference that, I, that I'm talking to you about, right? One side was like, like, literally everyone in my family could die and I'd mark my ex and then go to the funeral, and the other mm-hmm. side was like, I'll see if I can work it around volleyball practice. Yeah. Right? Like, that was the difference. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you sense a... Um, do you sense that here in Canada we will see and experience um, this frustration uh, at the elites? Yes. Uh, yeah? Yes. We're seeing it. Kelly Leach. Mm. Kelly Leach, conservatively right now, is running a campaign that... Let me tell you this. The Kelly Leach I met at a stampede breakfast... Uh, a year ago is not the Kelly Leach on stage today talking about Canadian values. Let's vet for Canadians. Let's close our borders. Let's reject the elites. This is a lady who's got 20 letters behind her name, doctor, MBA, everything. And yet she is now, because the numbers tell her to do so or whatever may be the reason, is promoting this just this, this rejection of elitism. The elites have, have, have robbed our politics from us. And uh, we're going to see it. We're going to see it on the campaign side. We're going to see it provincially here to some degree. Mm-hmm. We're going to see it provincially uh, in Ontario. I, 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 I starkly believe that. Um, is it going to manifest in an election win for that side? I personally would hope not. Yeah. Uh, but are we immune to it? Hell no. Not, eh? not at all. I don't think there's anything that makes us immune to it. Dude, just today, um, 
there was an article put out by Canada Land about Rebel Media, which I know yes. is a friend. You heard about this? Yeah. And how like they have gone off the rocker to this hard right anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim. Like, shockingly so, considering that the Rebel, as a media source to fill people in, is owned by a guy by the name of Ezra Levant, an Alberta native, uh, who, who himself is proudly Jewish, a Zionist. Uh, owns this media source, and you've got your biggest name brands within this this media organization uh, making some of the most despicable anti-Semitic comments, period, yeah. that I've heard, period. Yeah. And, like, being proud of it. And so are we as a country immune to it? No. Are we in our politics immune to it? No. Are we in our national conversation, hmm. which I would consider that to be, yeah. immune to it? No, we're not. We're, you know, what makes us, you know, what, what, what saves us right now in the global perspective where we have someone like Trudeau championing open borders, uh, you know, championing other things. Uh, would things have been different had Stephen Harper been prime minister? I don't know. Right. Like, mm. I think people feel like the one party in power, like it's like what, I, what I would tell progressive people is that just because Justin Trudeau won and is now speaking to the Canada that you feel like we should be, multicultural, diverse, open borders, accepting of everyone, right? Um, that's a fine line, right? That's, not, that's just top of the funnel. You know, if you look two or three layers deeper, you'll find that the growing sort of anti-elite, um, you know, who's the enemy situation to blame uh, narrative that took over the U.S. election, that took over Brexit, that that could take over France, that got narrowly rejected in in, uh, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, that very much does exist yes. in Canada. We're not immune to it. There's nothing mm-hmm. inherently special to to what to to what we're. I, do I do I like to think there is? I do, but the politics and the numbers really indicate that there is a market for that 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 sort of narrative. And so, unfortunately, I think we're going to see more and more of it. Yeah. Who's um, who's doing well with the uh, the federal conservative party leadership? In your I don't. Mind? I don't know. I don't know what well is anymore. I mean, <laughs> if if Kelly Leach is doing well in the sense she's speaking to a group of people that I I feel like may have been underrepresented for other reasons outside of you know vetting immigrants and so do I like to give her credit and say that she's speaking to a group of people as a strategist? Yes, as a civic you know person. No, yeah. not so much. Um, I'm hearing good things about, you know, Maxime Bernier, Andrew Scheer. I think Kevin O'Leary is still very much a threat. You know, what was interesting to me about Kevin O'Leary is that at certain debates, he's actually been the most progressive voice uh, on, around the table, around LGBT issues, around, uh, you know, um, abortion, social issues. Uh, as a guy who's more progressive, I'm excited about Michael Chong. I think Michael Chong's an interesting yeah. guy. Uh, you know, he's a, obviously... Uh, from Ontario, more progressive side of the PC government, um, on, of, of the CPC government, formerly a PC uh, there. So I don't, I don't know if anyone excites me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think if it comes down to it, I think you're going to see a roundtable of Maxime, Andrew Scheer, uh, Kevin O'Leary, Kelly Leach. Uh, unfortunately for someone like me who's you know very vocally a progressive here, uh, Michael Chong is on the outside looking into yes. that to that to that main group of people. But let's see how it ends up, man. I, I, I really don't have a good feel, to tell you the truth, mm-hmm. of that conservative membership base, yeah. right? Despite sitting here in Calgary, many would consider this to be the heart of conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. You, you go 15 minutes downtown, there's something called the Manning Foundation. Yeah. Preston Manning would argue that this is the heart of it. Uh, but despite that, I actually don't know who runs the tables in the conservative world today, right? If you asked me in 2015, I think I'd have a good sense, but... I think our international and global narrative around what conservatism is mm-hmm. has moved so much that I just don't have a good feel of what that membership base looks like, and I don't have a good feel of who they're signing up as members. 
And I think maybe that comment, despite me being like this lack of information on my part, I think maybe is actually a point in its own right, which is like, it's really interesting to see who the conservative base will be in the uh, next little yes. while, right? Like, right? Like, I think that base is evolving. Have some of them gone to the liberals? Are some of them trying to save their party and maybe get a Michael Chong and being like, you know, he's the guy arguing for market solutions. This is who we are, guys. We're the conservative party. Market solutions is our thing. Um, who the conservative base will be after May? Man, oh man, Kareem, I have no idea. But I'm really intrigued to tell because who is Kelly Leach recruited to the base? Who is Kevin Leary recruited to the base? Will they remain the base if their candidate isn't successful? There's a lot to be seen post-May as to what happens here. Interesting. Um, tell me a little bit about the stuff that you're doing. You're with, you're with Northweather. You're a VP of strategy there. Um, you're on CBC yeah. on a very regular basis. And again, you also have your podcast. Yeah, so I mean, Northweather is a is is a, is a communication strategy technology firm. So what we do is we build custom platforms, and we uh, for clients ranging from nonprofit, public sector, whatever they may be across across the North America, and some clients international as well. But what we do is we kind of take the strategies and the tools I've been talking to you about is mm-hmm. figuring out how to build platforms for clients, whether that's social digital advertising to convert people on a particular point of view or sell a particular product or sell a particular point of opinion. So that's what we kind of do at Northweather. CBC, I, I kind of comment on politics very similar yeah. to this, just you know, talk about the issues of the day, both locally and, and, and sometimes on CBC News World nationally. Uh, and then our podcast is making a comeback. So what we happen is in, in October of 16, uh, one of our, our, um, our podcast mates, Corey, uh, went to go become the senior communications guy for the Alberta government. So he's now the managing director of the Public Affairs Bureau. So we kind of took a pause, but we're making a comeback of some sort uh, in the next couple of weeks. So stay nice. tuned for that. Yeah, We'll keep our eye on that. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much for this time, man. My man, this was awesome. I hope I wasn't yelling too loudly into your no, mic no, and the no. audio levels aren't crazy, but thanks for coming by and I'm happy to chat about this. That's fine. Thank you. Cool.